Hello and welcome to another episode of the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest foxcasting either side of the breach. In Malifaux, the balance of power is a delicate thing. The Guild and the Union both command the loyalty of many extraordinary operatives. If the loyalty of any one of those operatives could be swayed, the balance of power could shift and Malifaux could be transformed. I hope you enjoy part one of The Price of Freedom, right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Breachside Broadcast is brought to you once again by the Miners and Steamfitters Union. If you believe in the value of your work, if you believe in standing up to oppression, if you believe in equality and human rights, join the union. In solidarity, we stand strong against the guild. Price of Freedom by Tear Makers Tony Ironsides brushed her way through the Union Hall and nodded to the clutch of mechanics gathered around the assignments board before clattering up the stairs and into the warren of offices above. The workers made way for her to pass. That wasn't new. Tony was used to commanding respect. But the way they'd up the side had changed since Ramos had named her president of the Union. She didn't like it. Tony also didn't like the confines of the MNSU's offices in Malifaux City, which were situated above the Union Hall and within sight of Industry Station. The hallways were narrow, and they twisted around the scattered offices in a way she found confining and oppressive. They were always crowded with messengers hurrying to their next assignment and binders idling between shifts, even when the Union Hall below was empty. Her office back at Hollow Point was more spacious, but not by much. This had never been Tony's place. When she was the Union's fist, she held court at the bar down the street, where she could keep an eye or a knuckle on the pulse of the city. Those days were gone, though. As president of the Union, she had responsibilities. She had schedules to approve, meetings to attend, threats to make, and promises to carry out. Worst of all, she had an office. Multiple offices, really, that people expected her to use. It wasn't really her office. Not yet. Ramos had used this one as a sort of backup workshop for his days spent in the city, and he hadn't cleaned up before he left. The wreckage of a dozen constructs cluttered the tight space. Jagged pieces of metal and smooth carapaces, all thrown together in no order that she'd been able to surmise. Sometimes they would momentarily lurch into arcane life, twitching on their shelves, or scraping halfway across the floor before cycling down. Tony tried her best to ignore them. There were other reminders of the old man tucked into shadows of the office. Unremarkable trinkets, possibly souvenirs of Ramos' time as president, possibly just junk the old man had never thrown out. Tony didn't know, and she didn't want to toss something out only to later learn it was something important. 
In her mind, she was just house-sitting for Ramos until he came back from the mountains and freed her from the shackles of obligation. The office weighed on her. It smelled like Ramos, like motor oil, soulstone dust, and the dry ink of contracts that were now her responsibility. Tony avoided the place when she was in the city, except when she couldn't, like this morning. Got a visitor, boss, Claudia shouted as Tony hurried past. The woman had named herself Tony's assistant, and had taken to standing guard over the oft-empty office of the president like an ink-stained gargoyle. No time, Tony snapped back. I'm supposed to approve these delivery schedules by the noon whistle, and then I have to make a run out to the mines. Already in there, boss, Claudia said without looking up from her typewriter. Tony stopped, hand on the knob, and sighed deeply. She hated when Claudia let people into Ramos' office. Her office. She entered reluctantly. Her visitor lounged in a chair in the corner of the room, staring out of the soot-ground window. He wore a wine-red long coat and balanced a black hat on his knee. His white hair stood in sharp contrast to the deep tan of his face, and the soft wrinkles around his eyes spoke of both age and an easy smile. The curled horns of a ram pin glittered on his lapel. Cyril, Tony said carefully, you're taking liberties being here. Wanted to get a head start on our next card game, Miss Ironsides, he said. Cyril Mullock was a witch hunter, one of the guild's hired murderers, and a better card sharp than Tony usually let into her weekly games. He was also as close to a friend as Tony had among the guild. He shifted the hat on his knee, casually folding his own coat to reveal the revolver on his belt. Tony grunted. I don't play cards in private, and I don't tolerate threats of any kind, she said. Tony pulled the door to her office wide, making sure Cyril understood they weren't alone. Why are you here? Friends can't visit. Wouldn't use that word, Cyril. Not here. Visit? Cyril said, smiling. Or friend. Cut the shit, Tony said quietly. Get to business or get out of my office. That's hardly... Cyril started carefully. He was interrupted by a second voice, coming from the shadows behind Tony. He's here to make sure you don't kill me, the voice said, at least not until we've had a chance to talk. Tony turned slowly. When she saw who it was waiting, she closed the door, locked it, and sidestepped into the corner of the room, keeping both men in sight. Franco Marlowe sat primly on a stool deep in the shadows. The legs of his sharply pressed trousers crossed, hands resting calmly on his knee. He was a narrow man, all hard lines and dark looks. His hair pulled back severely into a ponytail. He looked like a hawk perched above a field, just about to strike. He didn't wear a gilled pin, but he didn't need to. Everyone knew the new governor-general. That's funny, Marlow. You're really eating cereal here is enough to keep you safe she asked, rolling her shoulder. I mean, he's fast, sure, but I don't think he's fast enough. And if the boys downstairs hear a gunshot... Don't be dramatic, Miss Ironsides, Marlowe said. He leaned forward, grinning thinly. Neither one of us wants to have the kind of fight that would come from my death in the Union building. Says who? 
says me, Marlow answered, his voice firm. You're more than a fighter now, much more. Ramos left you an empire to manage. The Union depends on you, and its people depend on you. So let's stop pretending you're going to ruin all of that with pointless threats and posturing. He sat up and gestured toward the massive desk. Please, have a seat. Tony glanced at the desk, then at Cyril. Forgive me for not being at my ease, Governor. You're the one who brought a gun to this conversation. Cyril, if you please, Marlow said after only a moment's hesitation. The lady and I have business. Cyril unfolded from his chair and placed his hat on his head before nodding to Tony and making his way to the door. He unlocked it and stepped into the hallway. See you on Wednesday, Tony? Seven card this week, he asked. I guess we'll see about that, she replied, still eyeing Marlow. Might depend on how this conversation goes. Cyril nodded without answering and disappeared into the hallway. The door closed behind him. Tony crossed to the desk and leaned against it without letting her guard down, fixing Marlow with a dead-eyed stare. So, what do you want that you had to come all the way down here to talk in person? We were all surprised at Ramos' exit, Miss Ironsides. Very surprised indeed. Marlow leaned back, hands still resting on his knee, looking completely at ease on the stool. It raised a lot of questions in the halls of the Enclave. Ramos does what he will. You have questions about it, you should be asking him, Tony said. Maybe I will. Let's cut to the marrow, shall we, Miss Ironsides? The Guild knows about Ramos. We know who he is and what he does. We also know how he used you and the Union to further his more arcane goals. Of course you do, Tony said. She kept her face still, though she couldn't help curling up one hand into a fist. Ramos' dedication to the working men and women of Malifaux is well known to everyone. Even back on Earth, people know what he stood for, what he stands for. Marlow sighed as if he'd been hoping to avoid this particular line of discussion. I assure you there is no need to be coy. We know that Victor Ramos is an Arcanist. The head of the Arcanists, in fact. We have known for years. He is the sort of man who uses the people around him to get what he wants, trapping them in his webs, cocooning them in his lies and manipulations until they have no choice but to give him what he wants, regardless of what it costs them. He spread his hands silencing Tony's protestations. Spare me your clever lies, Miss Ironsides. We know this is true. We just can't prove it in a way that wouldn't lead to wide-scale rioting all across Malifaux. Tony was quiet for a while, weighing the cost of punching the Governor-General in the face against how good it would make her feel. Finally, she rubbed her nose and shrugged. Say that it's true. What of it? she asked. He's not with the Union anymore. Anything he did as president during the days since his resignation is his own business. And sure as hell happened without the Union's knowledge. Marlow raised his eyebrows in mock surprise. Really? Union thugs still guard his home. And Union funding still pays for all of the fancy machines being shipped out every week to the Northern Hills. I understand that he also draws a sizable pension from the Union every month. He waited for Tony to deny it. When she didn't, 
he continued. Your Victor Ramos isn't a union man. I'll be damned. You're already plenty damned, Milo, Tony grumbled. He barked out a genuine laugh. That I am, Miss Ironsides. That I am. His mirth disappeared as he climbed to his feet and leaned over Ironsides' desk, pressing his knuckles against its surface as he met her eye to eye. But damnation comes with a fair amount of power, especially in Malifaux. I've given up more power than you can possibly imagine to come to this wretched world and sort out the mess that Malifaux has become. Ramos and his arcanists are a thorn that should have been properly dealt with years ago. Ironsides glared at him for a long moment, then sighed and flopped back into her chair with an air of casual dismissal. What do you want, Marlow? I'm getting tired of this conversation. Marlow stepped back and nodded. What I want is simple. While Victor Ramos was the head of the Union, we couldn't touch him. We would have ground the Union into dust eventually, but the cost of that battle would have been too high. Too many misshipments. Too many lost man-hours. Too many dead employees. What makes you think you can touch him now? Tony asked, as she slowly rotated in her swivel chair. Like you said, Union Tugs are guarding his door. That seems to imply that they're still rather fond of him. Union Thugs who answer to you, Miss Ironsides. Marlow graced her with another thin smile. Thugs who might be willing to look the other way if you give them the word. Tony laughed and rolled her eyes. Oh, that's rich. What makes you think I'd betray him like that? Is this where you tried to bribe me with a few handfuls of cash? I'm not surprised you guild dogs don't understand anything about loyalty. I understand loyalty. I even admire it. Victor Ramos brought you through the breach and raised you up from a backstreet brawler to president of the most powerful union in the world. You owe him a great deal. Possibly your life. Possibly even more. Tony's eyes narrowed dangerously, and her chair halted mid-swivel. I worked for everything I got, Marlow. Everything. Of course, Marlow said, conceding the point. My apologies for the implication. It's just that a person of your circumstances... My circumstances? Tony stared up at him in disbelief. That's a riot! What the hell do you know about my circumstances? Marlow found himself on the back foot. I know that your father was executed while you were... Executed? Tony leapt to her feet, causing her chair to fly back against the far wall. My daddy wasn't executed, Marlow. He was lynched. There's a damn difference. Marlow stared directly into her face, meeting the hatred in her eyes head on. I meant no disrespect, Miss Ironsides. When I requested your dossier from the United States, it said that your father had been killed as punishment for stealing a horse. My daddy never stole anything. Ironside's voice was filled with heat, but it wasn't the fire of a raging bonfire. It was the heat of simmering embers, a fire which had been stoked and nursed for years. It was the sort of fire that turned iron into steel. They killed him because he was black and nothing else. Isn't that murder? What about justice? Miss Ironsides. No. You shut up and you listen to me for a minute, Tony growled. You talk about Victor Ramos like he's a criminal. Like he's some kind of madman, twisting everything to his advantage. Your guild wraps itself up in the law. 
killed whoever you want, whenever you want, and excuses it all in the name of order. But that's bullshit. Bullshit. She punched the desk, splintering it with a loud crack. The law dragged my daddy out of our house, Marlowe. Ten men, all with guns, as if my father was some kind of mad dog that had to be put down. My mama wouldn't let go of him. Kept crying, screaming. Took three men to pry her off. And then they hauled her down on the porch while the rest of those cowards tied a rope to my daddy's neck and hauled him up into the tree in our front yard. He just hung there, jerking his feet around, tongue hanging out, dying real slow. She flexed her hands, as if resisting the urge to punch something. And when it was done, when Daddy had stopped kicking and Mama wasn't screaming no more, Tony took a deep breath, distantly aware that her eyes were starting to tear up, daring Marlowe to say anything about it. They left him there. Just turn away and walk down the road, like they were filing out of church. My mother had to cut him down. The strength returned to her voice, and murder danced in her eyes near the surface. So don't listen to a damn thing those bastards in the States tell you, Marlowe. Those men did what they did, and their actions were the law. The sheriff was right there, holding my mother's arms as his deputy tied a rope around my daddy's neck. So you'll forgive me if I don't drop to my knees and beg for mercy when you talk about Victor Ramos being a criminal. I've seen enough of the guild to know that they're no different from that sheriff. Your laws don't protect anyone but yourselves. And those of us on the outskirts? She scoffed. In my experience, the criminals are less likely to be looking for the nearest tree when you disagree with them. Marlowe had sat back down in his chair, and as Ironsides finished speaking, he ran his fingers across the sharp press of his slacks. The whole way outside was unnaturally quiet. The clatter of Claudia's typewriter had gone silent, and the voices in the union hall below had faded. Tony stood quivering in the middle of the room, clenching and unclenching her fist atop her shattered desk. Finally, she turned away, rubbing her hand roughly across her cheek. Marlowe cleared his throat. I understand your anger, Miss Ironsides. I understand your loss. But those weren't guild men who killed your father. Marlowe stood, holding his hands in front of him, as though he was afraid Tony Mike tried to punch him. There's nothing I can do to bring your father back. It was a tragedy. Back home, it wasn't a tragedy, she countered. It was just life. That's the worst part of it. All the terrible things that happen, all the terrible things the guild does to people here in Malifaux and back on Earth, eventually you'll just get used to them. Start thinking that's the way the world works. With a sigh, she pulled her chair closer and fell into it, her hands shaking. You force people to bend the truth inside them too far, and eventually something snaps. That's why you'll never get rid of the arcanists. There's always going to be someone there. Someone who can't live in the world you keep trying to create. Marlow watched as Ironsides buried her face in her hands. Let me help you, he said, leaning forward. Let us help each other. Tony's voice was muffled beneath her hands. You don't have anything I want. 
Marlowe motioned to a pad of paper on her desk. May I? Tony batted a hand at him, and he took the pad, pulled a pen from his pocket, and began to write. His pen scratched across the paper, marking out each word with precise care. By the time he had finished, Tony had recovered and was watching him in mild confusion. With one final flourish, Marlowe signed the paper and turned it around, tossing it under Ironside's desk for her to read. You are in a position of great power, Miss Ironsides. You need to learn how to use that power, when you need to sacrifice a bishop to protect your queen. Tony didn't even look down at the pad. She lowered her hands and glared at him, her anger returning. The tears on her cheeks were dry, leaving only salt trails across her skin. Get out. If I see you in my office again, I'll troll you out, and I might not use the door. Very delicately, Marlowe stood up, tapped the pad on her desk, and slowly backed to the door. You can do a lot of good, but not with the ghost of Victor Ramos haunting the Union. When he was gone, Tony leaned forward, pressing the bottoms of her hands into her eyes for several minutes before she snatched the pad of paper off the desk. It was written in a neat, cramped style, but it wasn't a personal note. The writing was far too technical for that. It was a writ of law, a declaration to the guild's governing body. Tony's eyes went wide, and her heart skipped a beat. She had to read it three times for her to make sense of it, twice more believe what she was reading, and then another time to clear her head. She glanced at the door, then sat down heavily on the cracked desk, which strained in protest at its abuse. Well, she muttered, God damn, God damn. A week had passed since Ironside's meeting with Marlowe. She had asked to be notified when Ramos' next shipment of supplies was due to leave the city, and when it pulled out of the station, she and her hand-picked men tagged along with it. They rode in the rail car in silence all of them well aware of just what they were doing. None of them wanted to talk about it, so they didn't. When she saw Ramos, she stepped forward, her hand stretched out to him. Good to see you, Ramos. Any luck? We haven't found it yet, but we've eliminated potential locations, which is progress of its own sort. He took her hand in his own, the delicate gears in his pneumatic limb squeezing her fleshy hand with just the right amount of pressure. The workers speak well of your leadership. Einsides didn't quite know how to respond to that, so she changed the subject. Any problems with Rasputina? She released her grip and shoved her hands into her pockets. No more than what I expected. She's being difficult, but we had anticipated that from the very start. He took a moment to look her over his gaze straying to the white-faced men and women behind her. What's this? Ironside's motion to the group with her head. I brought some people to help out. O'Malley has a knack for soulstone dousing. And Hines the best crew chief in Malifaux. If you're going to be drilling. I have a crew, Ramos said. He motioned behind him, where an assortment of people were unloading the supplies and equipment from the train. Miners and steamfitters alike 
going on five years with the Union. They have been quite sufficient for my purposes thus far. By steamfitters he meant arcanists, and they both knew it. Macro is better, Ironsides insisted. They're all vetted. He raised an eyebrow. That she would even mention such a thing meant there was a concern that someone on his current crew had been compromised. Normally, it would have been a suspicion to tuck away in the back of his mind, but with the sensitive nature of his current goal, even the hint of a spy was a serious matter. I hear someone spotted Crid outside the guild enclave, as she recovered from her injuries. Not fully, but you know that woman. She met his eyes, and he saw concern in their depths. Please, Victor, let me do this. I'm worried about you, old man. Remo smiled, making it seem like an indulgence, but his eyes were as cold and calculating as one of his machines. He nodded. Of course. I'll be glad to have them. Ironsides nodded sharply. Eckert has a knack with fire. I figured he might be helpful if Rasputina keeps being difficult. If you picked him, Tony, then I'm sure I'll be in good hands. I still have preparations, though, so if you don't mind... Ironsides reached out, shaking his hand once more. For a moment she seemed to want to say something more, but she settled for a serious look and a warning. Be careful out there. Once she was gone, striding quickly into town with her hands shoved in her pockets, Ramos turned to the men and women Ironsides had gathered. Go help the others unload the supplies. I'll brief you on the specifics of the mission when we leave. They nodded and sauntered off without complaint. He watched them unload the drills and burners that would free the soulstone geode from its icy grave, and watched as a steam fitter imbued one of the lifting constructs with animating magic. It lurched itself into motion, a crude machine possessing none of the grace or dignity of his mighty leviathan. Ideas on how to improve its functioning began to form at the edges of his mind, but he pushed them aside. There was no time for distractions. Soon he whispered to himself. Very soon. That's it for another episode of the Breachside Broadcast. Join us next time for part two of The Price of Freedom.